Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 11. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this on March 4th, 2021, in now warm and beautiful spring-like Austin, Texas. Thank you again for listening, and please subscribe in your podcast app of choice so you never miss an episode. Also, we've had some really nice reviews on Apple. I don't think every last one of them is a friend of mine. So uh, please write one if you haven't. It's much appreciated. And check out our new Facebook page, which should be easy enough to find by searching in Facebook for the History of the Americans podcast. Enough with the pleasantries. This episode is Back to La Florida. If you spend as much time looking at dumb stuff on the internet as I do, you've seen a lot of Florida Man stories. Florida Man does all sorts of crazy things. When I edited this paragraph last week, the lead headline on Bing, I do my bit to promote competition in search, was Florida Man 83 shot neighbor in heated dispute about ducks and geese, which is pretty darn tame for Florida Man. Well, back in the day, Florida Man was so tough and crazy that it was more than 50 years after Ponce de Leon's official discovery of Florida in 1513 before the Spanish, who had dominated Cuba, Hispaniola, and Puerto Rico and conquered the Aztecs and the Inca, succeeded in establishing the first successful permanent settlement at St. Augustine in 1565. And it wasn't for lack of trying. So maybe the true roots of Florida man include the Spanish, whose various screw-ups foreshadowed the most cringeworthy Florida Man stories of the 21st century. Regardless, this episode of the podcast is about some of the early failed attempts of the Spanish to settle Florida in the first half of the 1500s, following Ponce de Leon's voyage of official discovery in 1513. These expeditions, though catastrophic failures, are nevertheless important for a bunch of reasons, and three rise to the top. First, most Americans who know something about early American history do not know very much about the early Spanish attempts to settle Florida. The history we have taught most generations of Americans is a bit too Anglo-centric even for me, and I rarely apologize for my Anglophilia. So even the early English failures have gotten a lot of attention. Most American history buffs know about the lost colony of Roanoke, and a great many Americans know the name Virginia Dare, even if they cannot remember precisely why. So here's to doing Florida Man appropriate justice. Second, the persistent Spanish push up the Atlantic coast from the south provoked responses from the northern European monarchs. We saw last week, for example, that Francois Premier, King of France, hired Verrazano out of fundamentally geopolitical rivalry. And that same consideration had motivated and would motivate various of the early English expeditions. Third, these early failed expeditions were part of the justification for Hernando de Soto's consequential four-year invasion of the American South and led unexpectedly to Francisco Vasquez de Caronado's expeditions to the American Southwest, as we will see in a few short weeks. 
At this point, everything will go more smoothly if we clarify a bit of nomenclature. The Spanish used the name La Florida to describe all of mainland North America that they knew of that was not New Spain and Mexico, including the Atlantic coast all the way to Newfoundland. This episode examines attempts to settle La Florida, but to keep the geography straight for you, our esteemed and gentle listeners, I'll use contemporary names to fix locations, such as South Carolina, rather than an obscure reference to a point on coastal La Florida. We've already seen that Ponce de Leon officially discovered Florida in 1513, officially, because Ponce, unlike various disreputable predecessors, had a royal patent, essentially a monopoly license, to explore for lands north of the Greater Antilles. Since Ponce was at that time the only Spaniard to have the royal imprimatur, he was therefore the only one who would have admitted to discovering Florida. And in any case, Ponce named the place, so history gives him full credit. By then, though, Spanish eyes were looking west, not north, from their bases in Cuba and Hispaniola. Hernán Cortés began his invasion of the Aztec Empire in 1519. In that same year, navigator Alonso Álvarez de Pineda sailed from Jamaica through the Florida Keys and then west to Mexico along the Gulf Coast, mapping the Gulf shoreline with mixed effectiveness. Álvarez de Pineda and his men may have been the first Europeans to see Louisiana, and maybe Texas, but there's no record that he went ashore in either case. Pineda, moreover, is probably the Spaniard who discovered the Mississippi River insofar as he mapped its mouth, notwithstanding the historical attribution of its discovery to Hernando de Soto. Regardless, by 1521, when Ponce launched a second mission to Florida, the Spanish had some sense of the coast of La Florida from roughly St. Augustine all the way around to Mexico. Ponce was a soldier, rancher, gold miner, promoter, and settler. As a young man, he had tagged along on Columbus's second voyage, and in 1493 participated in the founding of La Isabella, the first even remotely durable European settlement in the New World. He founded his own settlement in eastern Hispaniola and another on Puerto Rico. By 1520, when Ponce had fulfilled his various administrative obligations to the crown and had married off his two daughters, he had been knocking around the New World for 27 years. That itself reflects rather extraordinary longevity, given the mortality rates for European settlers. Nevertheless, he was ready to attempt a settlement in Florida and departed Puerto Rico with three or four ships almost exactly 500 years ago on February 26, 1521. Unfortunately for all of us, the historical record for Ponce's second voyage is a lot thinner than the first, so we know a lot less about it. Based on depositions taken years after the fact, seems like there was always litigation with depositions years after the fact, it seems that Ponce brought around 200 people on the expedition, including priests and friars and such, to convert the Indians to Christianity. He also brought cattle, pigs, sheep, goats, seed, and tools for farming and animal husbandry. 
This was a genuine attempt to start an enduring community in Florida. Like every other such attempt for the next 45 years, it would end in tears. Ponce seems to have headed again for the west coast of Florida, returning to the site of the 1513 landfall and encounter with Indians there. He tried to establish a settlement in the area of Charlotte Harbor, which is a bit north of modern Fort Myers. Unfortunately for the Spanish, this seems to have been right in the most populated part of the domain of the Calusa Indians, who were not to be trifled with. The Calusa had learned of the Spanish even before Ponce's voyage in 1513 from refugees from the Caribbean. You will recall that Ponce's first expedition encountered a Spanish-speaking Indian, and they were determined to hold their ground. The Calusa engaged the settlers at some point inland. We do not know exactly where or who drew first blood or why, and killed and wounded many of the Spanish. Ponce, among as many as 80 other casualties, was wounded by an arrow through one of his thighs. The expedition retired for the coast and beat it back to Cuba to regroup with the apparent intention of mounting a second attempt. On the way to the just-founded Havana, Ponce's nephew died of wounds from the battle and was buried at sea. Deaths from wounds continued in Havana, and Ponce himself died in July 1521. He was 47 years old. There would be no second attempt, at least at Ponce's behest. The Calusas and other Floridian tribes would successfully repel every other Spanish incursion into Florida for another 45 years. And in the next couple of weeks, we'll see a really gruesome such encounter. Now we will return to the east coast of La Florida, culminating in Lucas Vasquez de Ayon's doomed colony of San Miguel de Gualdape, the perfect title of a paper by Douglas T. Peck published in the Georgia Historical Quarterly almost 20 years ago. Ayon's expedition to the coast of La Florida, but actually a bit north of Florida, has not been terribly prominent in most American histories for any number of reasons, mostly to do with its abject failure. But then again, Roanoke failed too. In the last couple of years, however, the story of Ayon's doomed colony has been trending, as people who tweet might say, for reasons that will become clear in due course. At this point, it should be said that the Spanish colonial effort in the Caribbean, Mexico, and La Florida seemed more centrally planned than it actually was. In principle, post-Columbian voyages of discovery were only lawful if authorized by the Spanish crown, usually pursuant to a patent that would authorize a particular person to lead an expedition and profit from it. The monarch relied on a royal council of advisors to decide which explorer should go where and for what upside. All the considerations you might expect, the potential for wealth, evangelical objectives, geopolitical rivalry, and rank individual ambition factored into these decisions. In practice, whoever the key players in the Spanish Caribbean and Gulf of Mexico were engaged in a fierce competition with each other. In the 1520s, the important figures were Diego Velazquez, who was in charge of Cuba, his devoted friend and ally, Panfilo de Navaez, 
Hernan Cortez, who most of you know is the conqueror of the Aztecs, and Lucas Vasquez de Aon, a wealthy judge on Cuba. Ponce de Leon had been in that crowd too, but as you just heard, Indians in his own ambition killed Ponce before the expeditions of the 1520s really got rolling. Now at this point, Cortez had essentially gone rogue in Mexico, not entirely unlike Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now. Velasquez had dispatched Narvaez, who would be the Martin Sheen character in the movie, to bring Cortez back, or back under control. Combat ensued. Narvaez lost an eye to the point of a pike. And after what amounted to a mini-civil war in New Spain, Cortez chucked Narvaez in the clink for four years, an affront not only to Narvaez, but also to Governor Velasquez. Aon, the judge, had in various ways sided with Cortez in the dispute. Not surprisingly, Velasquez and Narvaez hated Cortez and Aon, and almost certainly vice versa. This hatred would catalyze a lot of stupidity, as hatred almost always does. The Spanish crown was not, at that point, taking the initiative to get this mess under control. After Ferdinand's death in 1516, the crown of Spain had landed on the head of young Charles I, who had been born only in 1500 and raised in Flanders, which is, you know, Belgium. Hereditary monarchy can go in strange directions. Anyway, Charles would go on to become the great Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, but in the early 1520s, he was not driving events in the Spanish possessions across the Atlantic. Rather, the various colonial factions would schlep to Spain, travel with the itinerant royal court, and lobby the king's whisperers for patents of exploration while bad-mouthing and maneuvering to dispossess their rivals. Out of those efforts, Aon would get a patent to settle part of the Atlantic coast of La Florida, roughly the coasts of South Carolina and Georgia, and Narvaez would win authorization to settle a vast range of territory stretching from the Pacific coast of Mexico just north of Cortez-authorized territory, running on its northern boundary at roughly latitude 31 degrees north, say Mobile, Alabama, all the way to the Atlantic coast. That put Narvaez on the border of Cortez in Mexico and, as we shall see, Aon on the Atlantic coast. I'll put a map in the show notes and on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Apologies for all the detail, but this palace intrigue had downstream consequences for the Spanish exploration and settlement of North America, as we shall see over the next few episodes. So who was Lucas Vasquez de Aon? Professor Andres Resendez of the University of California, Davis, wrote that, quote, the ubiquitous Vasquez de Aon was a man of great learning and gravity, for whom 24 hours was not enough time in the day for his multiple occupations, beginning with his colorful private life. Although married, he had one or more illegitimate children and quite possibly kept a neighbor's wife in his house as a concubine. Beyond his romantic pursuits, Vasquez de Aon 
owned a sugar plantation and was also an enthusiastic participant in the slave trade. He sponsored slaving expeditions to the Bahamas. But his ships were so poorly provisioned that many of the captives died in transit. Sounds like a lovely guy. Anyway, Aeon's slaving business led to his expedition. At some point between 1514 and 1516, a slaver named Pedro de Salazar stumbled upon undiscovered coastline northwest of the Bahamas. He reported that the territory itself was desirable, and he brought back Indians of, quote, giant stature who commanded a particularly high price on the Hispaniola slave market. Based on Salazar's report, in the spring of 1521, while Ponce was on his way to the West Coast, Aon dispatched a navigator, one Francisco Gordillo, in search of this beautiful land of giant Indians. Gordillo sailed north from Great Abaco Island, about 400 statute miles, to the Waccamaw River and Winya Bay, near present-day Georgetown, South Carolina. Gordillo stayed in the area for nearly a month, trading with the unusually tall Indians, and then they grabbed 60 of them as slaves and returned to Santo Domingo, full of glowing stories about the fertility of the land and so forth. Presumably delighted with the potential of this new territory, shortly thereafter, Aeon was lobbying the crown for a license to settle the region, which he finally obtained, almost two years later, in the summer of 1523. Aeon sent another pilot, Pedro de Cajo, with two caravels and 60 men on a reconnaissance expedition in the summer of 1525. It took a long time to organize things back then. With orders to explore about 700 miles of the shoreline, to take soundings and latitudes, and to make a chart and rudder. A rudder was a mariner's written description of the voyage with observations that would be useful to other navigators. The chart and rudder are now lost, but we believe Keo made it up to Chesapeake Bay and Delaware Bay and charted them for the first time. Both had been missed by Verrazano only the year before. All of this being very promising, Aeon assembled a fleet of six ships and 600 people, including women, children, and black slaves, the last to become the first African slaves in the lands now constituting the United States. There were priests, but not soldiers. Notwithstanding Aeon's interest in slaving and the slaves along on the expedition, this was not to be a slaving mission. It was to be a permanent settlement, and that required peaceful relations with the local Indians. Aeon brought supplies, presumably sufficient to launch the settlement, including seeds, cuttings for planting, cassava bread, maize, and cattle, sheep, pigs, and about a hundred horses. The fleet departed Porta Plata on the north shore of the present-day Dominican Republic in the middle of July 1526, at least ten years after Pedro Salazar's first encounter with the giant Indians and five years after Francisco Gordillo's original scouting mission. Around three weeks later, on August 9, 1526, the fleet reached the sandbar at the entrance to Winyap Bay, South Carolina, roughly halfway between Charleston and Myrtle Beach. Disaster struck. The flagship Capitana ran aground and somehow went down with all its cargo. 
Ayan, the crew, and the passengers managed to get ashore, but the expedition had lost critically important supplies right at the beginning. I should say that I have a tough time picturing exactly how it was that the ship and all the supplies were lost on the one hand, and a bunch of non-swimming Spaniards were able to get ashore safely on the other. That is what the historical record, such as it is, describes. The expedition camped somewhere along the edge of Winya Bay for a month, and Ayan and his fellow settlers, now hungry and increasingly sick, concluded that it was not such a great place for a settlement after all. His reconnaissance expeditions were for naught, or so it seems. Anyway, Ayon decided to move the entire company to the mouth of a previously mapped river to the south he named the Guadape, where he would establish a settlement. He sent the ships on ahead and led a small group of men, the horses, and probably the cattle, over land. Peck speculates that Aon traveled over land, which was much more difficult, so he could scout Indian settlements and get food that could be foraged, bought, or looted. In any case, the party on foot met up with a fleet at the predetermined rendezvous. There, according to Peck, they set about constructing the settlement composed of houses, storehouses for food, pens for the livestock, and the all-important church. The town was formally established and named San Miguel de Gualdape, probably on September 29th, since that is the date of the Festival of St. Michael. There is controversy about where this was, and no archaeological remains have emerged. But Peck argues that the weight of the evidence is that San Miguel de Gualdape, the first European settlement in today's United States, was at the mouth of the Savannah River in the area of Tybee Roads. Per Google Maps, the site would have been within shouting distance of the South Carolina-Georgia line, give or take a couple of miles. In any case, as the title of Peck's paper makes clear, the town was doomed from the start. Quoting Peck, Most of the food meant to sustain the settlement until it could become self-supporting had gone down with a capitana. Afterward, the delays encountered at Winya Bay had moved the colony past the planting and growing season, and there were no large Indian stores of food in the area to obtain by purchase or coerced tribute. In addition to the near-starvation diet, physical exhaustion, and untreated diseases, a series of unseasonable cold fronts, we in Texas know a thing or two about those, that dropped the temperatures in just a few hours from around 70 to near freezing conditions, hit the colony in early October. The final blow in this unhappy situation landed on October 28, when Aon died of an unknown illness. Aon's designated successor in command was still in Puerto Rico, so the proud and disgruntled aristocrats in the company fell into a predictable squabble over leadership, and the course of action needed to save the enterprise. Two opposing groups quickly evolved. Captain Francisco Gomez and the Alcalde of San Miguel led the group loyal to Ayon and his mission. But a renegade faction of the discouraged and desperate settlers, headed by Jean Doncel, a minor noble from Santo Domingo, soon obtained the upper hand. In the confused infighting that followed, Doncel once even summarily arrested Gomez, 
and for lack of a jail, locked him up in Dunsell's house. During this period of anarchy, a group of famished and desperate settlers attempted to move into a nearby Indian village and impose upon the natives for food. The Indians soon tired of this, and after the settlers had feasted for a few days, slew them all in a single night attack. In the chaotic situation that followed, with black slaves setting fire to Donsal's house, Gomez and the Alcalde regained control, but facing reality, decided to abandon the colony and return to the Antilles. The evacuation of the settlers started in the latter part of October and the last ship departed in mid-November. It was so cold on the return trip that seven men died of exposure. We love as much as anybody to record firsts of all sorts. And there were many firsts at San Miguel. San Miguel was the first European settlement in the mainland that would become the United States, even if it only lasted a couple of months. The Aeon expedition introduced the first African slaves to the future United States and triggered their first revolt 93 years before the first blacks arrived at Jamestown. This was also the first attempt of starving European settlers on the mainland to extract food from Indians by one means or another. And the first time Indians wiped out a group of starving European settlers in a sneak attack both an echo of the catastrophe at La Navidad between Columbus's first and second voyages. And San Miguel de Guadalupe was the first time in the history of the Americans that aristocratic Europeans, under pressure and not fond of doing actual work, would put their own pride and status ahead of the survival of the common settlers. All of these patterns would repeat over the next century, including very prominently among the English at Jamestown. One would have thought that this catastrophe, fully reported by the survivors, would have set back the cause of settlement of the Atlantic coast for a long time. Quite to the contrary, Spain was full of boosters of the New World, the most famous of whom was an Italian in the service of Spain named Peter Martyr. We mentioned him in the last episode on Columbus. Martyr was an early skeptic of the claim that Columbus had discovered a western route to Asia. Martyr became the Richard Hacklett of the Spanish and wrote extensively and glowingly about Aeon's various discoveries, including those of Gordillo and Keo at Aeon's behest. Martyr's writings and other optimistic Spanish accounts and Peck's words excited the hopes of subsequent entrepreneurs who were convinced that the extensive new land must surely contain the riches of another Peru or Mexico. Post-Aeon propaganda also caught the attention of European kings, which led to multiple subsequent doomed attempts to settle in the general region, including by the French, again at Winya Bay, and the English at Roanoke Island. Of the 16th century attempts, only St. Augustine, established by the Spanish almost 40 years after Aeon, would survive. The most immediate consequences were at least two. First, Aeon's expedition was implicitly a challenge to his rivals, Diego Velazquez, governor of Cuba, and Panfilo de Nevaez, who had that huge claim that stretched coast to coast at roughly the latitude of Mobile, Alabama. 
They wanted to succeed where Ayan had failed and stick it to Ayan's ally Cortez in the doing. Next time, we will begin the almost unbelievable story of the Narvaez expedition, which would fail even more spectacularly than Ayan's, but would also set off a chain of events that would lead to the inadvertent discovery of Texas, a topic very near and dear to the hearts of Texans, and eventually to Francisco Vasquez de Coronado's exploration of the American Southwest. Second, because of New World boosterism following Ayon's discoveries, the Spanish crown authorized more missions that were important for other reasons. One of Hernando de Soto's mandates was to establish a settlement on the Atlantic coast where Ayon had failed. De Soto did not do as he was told to do and instead spent four years roaming around the American South in search of the next Tenochtitlan and gold and other stuff that might bring him glory, of which more down the road. So this seems like a great place to stop. Thank you again for listening. Please subscribe to the History of the Americans in your podcatcher of choice. Rate the podcast robustly. And if the spirit moves you, please write a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. And as I said, we now have a Facebook page, which you can find by searching in the usual way. There we will post alerts of new episodes and other interesting bits from American history that we happen to stumble upon. As always, please send me comments, criticisms, corrections, questions, and pats on the back by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com or on the website for the podcast, thehistoryoftheamericans.com. Thank you very much. 